Hello and welcome to Stories from India, a podcast where we talk about myths, legends and folk tales from India. I am your host Narad Muni and I'm a mythological character myself. I have the gift of eternal life and knowledge of the past, the present and the future. By profession, I'm a traveling musician and a storyteller. So the way I'm doing my job is by podcast. One of your listeners specifically requested we do an episode on Ashoka. So here we are. On this show, we mostly talk about mythology, legends and folk tales and sometimes real history. Today's episode is firmly in the history category. Though you could also argue that Ashoka was a legend. Regardless, as I'm the reservoir of all human knowledge, you can trust that what I'm about to relate is as close to a ringside seating as you can expect. Sometimes I just wish my powers of recollection were as perfect as everything else about me. Now, where was I? Oh yes, what follows is as close to an eyewitness account as I could manage. I had to travel through time a few times to get things reasonably right. We'll start today's episode not with Ashoka, but his father, Bindusar. You might have expected us to start with Ashoka's grandfather, Chandragupta Maurya, who was also the founder of the dynasty. But it'll be best to reserve Chandragupta's story and that of his famous advisor Chanakya for a future episode. Bindusar was Chandragupta's son and took to the throne at the early age of 22 when Chandragupta discovered the virtues of Jainism and retired into a secluded life. Bindusar, despite his inexperience, did a fairly decent job expanding the huge empire he had inherited from Chandragupta. But much of the credit for that goes to Chanakya, who continued to serve as Prime Minister. It was in Champapuri, a small town in this huge empire that there lived a girl, Shubhadrangi. She is described as extremely beautiful in a way that clearly is not talking about inner beauty. When she was a reasonable age, her father did what was expected of any father in those days. He consulted a fortune teller or career counsellors, as they prefer to call themselves. The fortune teller predicted that she would marry a king. When the shock of that wore off, he continued that her son would be king as well. Duh, said Shubhadrangi. If my husband is a king, it's only logical that my son will be king too. Not necessarily, said the fortune teller. Sorry, career counsellor. Most kings have lots of wives and lots of sons, he continued. 
usually only one of them succeeds to the throne. To that throne, yes. But most of the sons are given small provinces of their own to play with, still all within the father's empire. They call themselves kings, but they're really governors, replied the girl. Anyway, I have a better prediction. Your other son will become a religious guy. This is ancient India. Everyone is religious. No, no, said the career counsellor. I meant he'll become a really religious guy, like a priest or a monk or something. Shubhadrangi's family was excited by this prospect of her marrying a king. She certainly looked the part from their perspective. They decided to hurry matters along by taking her to the emperor in nearby Pataliputra. They thought, why not go straight to the top instead of starting at a low-key or mid-level king? Bindusar received them and heard them on his court day. As he was listening to them, the emperor made a quick mental classification. On every court day, he would get his share of charmers, confidence tricksters, crackpots and cold callers. Bindusar decided that Shubhadrangi's family seemed to check all of the boxes if they were really expecting him to marry her. Chanakya had taught him that he needed to be decisive. Do, delegate or dump, but don't delay. He thanked the family and offered her a position in the palace, which she accepted. Satisfied with the outcome, Shubhadrangi's parents returned to Champa. They had seen the look in the emperor's eyes when he looked at their daughter. Love would blossom there in time. One of Bindusar's queens took a look at Shubhadrangi. The queen was also the head of employment services in the palace. She decided Shubhadrangi was so beautiful, she was going to be a major risk. Shubhadrangi could not be allowed to get up close and personal with the emperor. So the queen offered the girl the position of the emperor's barber. You might be puzzled at why the girl would be put in such close proximity with the emperor if the queen's goal was to keep them apart. So let me explain. Yes, it was true back then, just as it is now, that some people spill their deepest, innermost secrets to their barbers. And yet, there was one major barrier that the queen was relying on. The class barrier. A barber belonged to the worker class. And societal rules strictly forbade anything more than a casual acquaintanceship with the ruling class. That was her intention, but it backfired pretty quickly. The emperor, impressed by Shubhadrangi's skill at shaving and grooming him, and learning of her birth, 
decided to make her his queen after all. The loophole he was exploiting was based on the fact that in ancient India, your class was decided by birth and not by what you did. A warrior could start doing construction work and laying bricks, but they would remain a warrior. Bindusar got some heat from his queens. It was a prophecy. It's not like I have a choice. I have to marry her. He lied to his queen, who was rather upset when he announced the news. This is the 16th one in two years, replied the queen. You carry on like this and you'll have major problems to deal with when you want to retire. The queen was not wrong. In time, Ashoka and Vita Ashoka were born to Shubhadrangi. But another 99 sons were born across all the other queens Bindusar had. Bindusar had long pondered over how he would solve this problem. He had the opposite problem that was plaguing the emperors in the Mahabharat. There, they did not have enough successes. And here, Bindusar had way too many. And what's worse, Bindusar did not have anybody to help him. Imagine how Akbar would have felt without Birbal or Bertie Wooster without Jeeves. That's how Bindusar was feeling without Chanakya by his side. The emperor finally decided that he needed to do what his father-in-law had done. He had a career counsellor brought over. And that man was pretty sure that Ashoka would be the one to make it to the throne. Bindusar was not happy. Ashoka? He's the ugliest of the lot, said the emperor. I know it shouldn't matter, but can you imagine Ashoka's face on all our currency? I don't get it with you narcissistic emperors, replied the fortune teller. And why do you want his face on your currency anyway? Just put a symbol, like maybe an apex predator that strikes fear in your enemies and will give your citizens more courage. But the emperor wasn't paying attention. Suddenly, his face was lit up, like he had just thought of a brilliant idea. I know what to do, he said. I'm going to throw the boy to the wolves. There's a revolt in Takshashila. I'll send Ashoka to deal with it. If he cannot deal with it, he'll probably be killed. If he does deal with it, it must mean he's capable. Either way, it's a win-win for me. Well, the emperor was right, but not exactly. Ashoka gladly accepted the task. Even though Bindusar did not provide him adequate weapons and soldiers. But Ashoka managed to deal with the revolt anyway. And that's because he got lucky. All there had been was a misunderstanding. When he reached Takshashila, he found that the red carpet was laid out for him. 
and everything was ready at the negotiating table. It turned out that Takshashila citizens were rather happy with the emperor. It was the governor that they could not stand. This had just been a game of telephone gone horribly wrong. But this was to Ashoka's advantage. He came back with a signed treaty, all in exchange for a simple transfer order. The governor of Takshashila was now no longer the governor. He had been encouraged to take up a voluntary retirement scheme. Impressed by Ashoka's achievements, but still unable to come to terms with his appearance, Bindusar decided to make him governor of Ujjain. Anything to keep him out of sight, he thought. Ashoka was not the crown prince. That honour instead was given to Sushima, the eldest of Bindusar's sons. That may not have been a wise decision. Because the crown prince was not a very people person and certainly lacked a certain kind of maturity that prevented you from slapping your dad's minister's bald head. Well, the minister did not forget that as a playful incident, especially as Sushima was decades past the toddler age. The minister rallied other ministers to his cause, and they decided that Ashoka would make a much better emperor than Tsushima, than the crown prince. Soon, another revolt broke out in Takshashila, and Bindusar, this time, asked Tsushima to deal with it. Tsushima totally messed this up. No doubt, he must have gone about slapping all the bald heads at the negotiating table in Takshashila. Hearing through the same distorted telephone line from Takshashila about a vastly amplified pessimistic outlook of the negotiations, Bindusar decided it was time to pull in Ashoka. Bindusar, who was in poor health by this time, decided to recall Tsushima and let Ashoka deal with it. Maybe this time, Ashoka would fail, just like his dad had always wanted. Meanwhile, the minister with the bald head, who still remembered Tsushima's ignominious slap, thought that this was the right opportunity to convince Bindusar to put Ashoka on the throne instead. That did not work very well. But Ashoka did not go to Takshashila. And when Bindusar passed away shortly afterwards, Ashoka declared himself emperor. He had the support of the ministers and that helped him in his struggle for the throne against all his brothers. In what was a very dark time for the family, Ashoka emerged as the victor. Those who did not join him were destroyed. The fratricide count estimates vary from as low as 6 to as high as 99. When he took over as emperor, 
Ashoka finally saw the map of India and all the portions that he had inherited. Everything on the map that the light touched was his. Except one. What's that shadowy place? he asked. Why, that's Kalinga, said his minister. We don't deal with them. We leave them alone. But I want to collect the whole set. I want to be emperor of all of India, said Ashoka. Even if you get Kalinga, you wouldn't be emperor of all of India. There's still the very southern tip of India. The Pandyas, the Cholas, the Cheras, and then there's Sri Lanka. We'll start with Kalinga and work our way south, said the emperor, and ordered his troops to march onto the kingdom. It took a while, but Kalinga was defeated. But at too great a cost. Ashoka had not been on the front lines before, and when he visited the scene, he was disgusted. The scene at the battlefield managed to shake him in a way that slaying his own brothers had not. A hundred thousand soldiers lying dead in the most gory way possible. Women and children crying, grieving for their husbands, their fathers, their brothers, their sons. And Ashoka had caused it all. Just to make his map look prettier. What his queen, Asandhi Mitra, had been saying all along was starting to make sense to him now about Buddha's teachings, the value of life, karma. No more conquests, he thought. That does not mean that he dismantled the army. That would have been foolish and an invitation for invaders. He did keep the army well-funded, but for defense only. He also kept his infamous torture prison going as well. But because he was starting to value life, he just didn't want to hear any of the details about it. He had decided to be peaceful, but peaceful on his own terms. His situation was not unlike some recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize. Some recipients who have done things that completely challenges the idea that they had peaceful intentions in the first place. The stories vary as to his actual conversion to Buddhism. If the Kalinga war was not fully responsible for his switch, it took him closer to the edge. What pushed him over was a conversation he had with a young boy. He passed the boy on the road one day and was struck by how calm the boy looked. The boy had a certain aura. Ashoka stopped the boy and asked him who he was. The boy introduced himself as Ashoka's nephew. Yes, I'm Nigrodha, one of the sons of your 99 brothers. Never mind which one. We haven't named them on this episode except for a couple. 
it'll just sound like another name, easy to forget. But unfortunately for Ashoka, he had made the connection already in his mind. The boy looked remarkably like brother number 37, the one whom he had killed by the poolside after dinner. Aren't you angry with me? Don't you want revenge or something? Ashoka asked the boy cautiously. No, replied the boy. Do you think this is a Bollywood movie? I don't want revenge. If you think that I might, you haven't grasped the key idea of Buddhism. So teach me, said the emperor of all of India to this 12-year-old boy. And the boy did. And what's more, he directed the emperor to a Buddhist monastery where Ashoka could learn more. The emperor never stopped being emperor, but he tried to learn as much as he could. Ashoka's son and daughter both converted to Buddhism and left home to spread the Buddha's teachings in Sri Lanka. Ashoka, in his old age, was fervently trying to do more. He was already donating large portions of taxpayer money to Buddhist monasteries. His ministers did not like this idea very much. They thought he was bankrupting the state, even though they could have just minted more money. Ashoka continued to donate his personal wealth until his ministers cut off his access to that too. Ultimately, when Ashoka lay on his deathbed, he died penniless. He had only half an amla or gooseberry left. And that too, he donated to the monastery. That's all for now. Some notes on the show. Ashoka was one of the greatest emperors of India. Despite his very violent rule, he is most famous for having switched to peaceful ways. He helped spread Buddhism throughout the country as well as in Sri Lanka. He championed the creation of thousands of pillars all over the country and helped spread the Buddha's teachings. Yeah, the pillars perform the same function as books do in today's world or podcasts for that matter. Each pillar is itself a fine work of art. At the top of the most famous pillar, it's a sculpture of four lions. This is the one you'll find on all Indian currency notes and most coins. Under the lion's feet is the Ashok Chakra, a navy blue wheel with 24 spokes that represent 12 stages of suffering in forward and in reverse. This one's even on the Indian national flag. Check out some pictures linked in the show notes. Now, Ashoka could have switched to Jainism, just like his grandfather did. Jainism also similarly preaches nonviolence. But Ashoka 
chose Buddhism probably because Buddhist spiritual teachers were available to him. There are many sources of Ashoka's stories and they are all inconsistent. Some of them make him out to be a particularly evil guy in the beginning, probably to make his subsequent conversion to Buddhism all the more impressive. Bindusar had a hundred sons, just like Dhritarashtra and Gandhari in the Mahabharata, though in both cases it's unlikely that they were exactly a hundred sons. I mean, the many times that I visited Hastinapur, I tried counting, but I don't think I saw an exact hundred. The word in the local language was probably just a substitute and was meant to indicate several. Either way, the situation with a hundred or several sons was very different between the Mahabharata and Bindusar's case. In the Mahabharata, all but one of those sons was united in their choice of Duryodhan as the nominee for the throne. In Ashoka's case, he had to fight his brothers for the throne. Maybe they had learned from the Mahabharata, or maybe when there is no external competition to the throne, that's when all the infighting begins. Ashoka was also character of the week in episode 27, back when we used to do character of the week features on this show. That's all I have for now. In the next episode, we'll do a Vikram and Betal story. Some of you have asked for one. So we'll see the Betal present yet another lateral thinking puzzle to Vikram. Will we finally see Vikram stumped? Find out next week. If you have comments or suggestions, or if there are particular stories that you would like to hear, please do let me know by leaving a comment or a review on the site sfipodcast.com or tweet at sfipodcast. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get notified automatically of new episodes. Thanks to all of you listeners for your continued support and your feedback. The music is from purpleplanet.com. That's purple-planet.com. I'll see you next time. Yeah.